This podcast is sponsored by Logos Bible Software. If you've been longing for the tools to take your Bible study deeper, you need to try out Logos. I've been personally using Logos for over a decade now for both my devotional and pastoral study. Right now, Logos has partnered with the Kingdom Dreamers to bring you exclusive savings. Check out at logos.com forward slash Kingdom Dreamer or click the link in the show notes for our exclusive offer. Because I have a dream. Staggered by the winds of police brutality, uh, you have been the veterans of creative suffering. The ballot or the bullet is to either ignore them or, or to deny them without giving And we stand together to win the war. One all family. Yes, we can. Can we all get along? Welcome in to the Wild Wild World Show, the podcast of conscious Christian conversation about the chaos in the cosmos. Yep, that's exactly what we're doing here. This is a Kingdom Dreamer podcast where we fight to reunite righteousness and justice. Kellen, how you doing? I'm doing good, my brother. When you say things like cosmos, I feel like I got to put my, my cosmos voice on, like, I don't That's even true. know what that would sound like, but it sounds like that, that needs to be some gravitas, you know, because we're talking about the cosmos, not just our little corner of the world, but the cosmos. The whole dang universe. The whole thing, the whole shebang. So I'm doing good, my brother. I'm doing very good. If you I, can I like keep that voice for the rest of the rocks. podcast, I'll be very, very impressed. Oh, we're going to try. That'd be so amazing. But hey, y'all know what it is. Follow us on Twitter at Kingdom X Dreams. Follow me at William R. Horn, H O R N E. Follow Kellen at old boy underscore K underscore R. That's O L E B O Y. Well, I I'm so I'm so mature. I haven't made any horny jokes about you in a long time. That's fair. Seems how that goes back to like middle school, my man. I know. So see how mature I am, Will. It's that cosmos stuff. That there you gravitas go. in your voice is bringing maturity there you go, baby. out, man. There you go. I see it. Hey, but support us also on Patreon. We do have a Patreon page now, patreon.com forward slash Kingdom Dreamers. There you can get the exclusive content. Every week we have an extended conversation. We'll have one of those again today. And you can get a bunch of other benefits. You can get merch, you can get hats, all those things on the website. So get there, patreon.com. We also got a giveaway this week, giving away a book from Dr. Jip called Saved by Faith and Hospitality. He's going to be the special interview at the end. So we'll get to that. But into that giveaway the link will be in the show notes but man let's get into it it's really really crazy out here man crazy out here man how crazy yeah. is it man it's so crazy out here we got america's favorite fake mexican restaurant chipotle oh i hit dropping 25 mil that's like nfl quarterback money 25 mil for a record-setting settlement for getting getting folks sick, y'all might y'all might remember some of these news stories that's been popping up over the years. It's not just a one time thing. From like 2015 to 2018, they got over 1,100 people sick with tainted food, and they paying up. So those of y'all that love Chipotle, speaking to some of my family members, just know Chipotle more than any of these other spots. You know, we always joke about White Castle or Taco Bell getting folks sick. Chipotle is literally getting folks sick to the point where they got to pay out millions. To cover it. Yeah. That's wild. So $25 million 
and eleven hundred sex. I'm curious if all that money's going to the people. It can't be because that'd be like twenty two grand a pop, and then I'm gonna have to find a way to get sick. Well, you know, so I can see this money slide this way. That's fair. There's no way all that goes. But that it is pretty wild though, because I've made a lot of Chipotle in my life, and I, it's decent. You know, I'm not, I'm a fan. I guess if I got to pick a chain, I don't know. It's never yeah. got me sick, but it seems to always be in the news for the sickness. But you, you know, that's what Chipotle is though, man. Like it's in this weird little little um, niche of food where it's like Americanized fast food eyes. Uh, cultural food or whatever, ethnic food, right? So Chipotle is like Americanized Mexican food. Like, it's not real Mexican food. Nobody's confusing it with Mexican food, but Chipotle is Chipotle. Like, the only thing that's kind of in this lane is Cadoba, right? And so, but I have fond memories. Like, I remember back in the day, I don't, I don't even remember when Chipotle first came out, but there was a time in my life when I was back home from school in the summer, and one of my homies was working downtown at a spot I used to kick it at, um, at, the, at a Bob Marley store, actually, we used to go over there, just kick it, hang out, and there was a Chipotle, a Chipotle right next door. That's before, like, at least I knew it was famous. I, I honestly might have thought it was just a little local thing or whatever. And I go in there and get a, a burrito a couple times a week. You know what I'm saying? It was a good meal for, like, five fifty or whatever it was. And, you know, you match your burrito, you're good to go. But it was never, like, real Mexican food. It's kind of like Panda Express. That ain't real Chinese food, you know. You ain't confusing it with no real Chinese food. But sometimes you might want you some Panda Express, just like Olive Garden. Ain't real, ain't, ain't serious Italian food, but sometimes you might just want you some Olive Garden, you know, and, and it's okay. But Panda Express and Olive Garden, my knowledge ain't out here putting folks in the hospital. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. But like, I mean, it doesn't seem to slow them down a whole lot. There's still Chipotle's on every block. It seems like now, or at least like downtown, like city places. You know, there's one right by me. Like, look, my oh. kids was just eating Chipotle the other day. People love Chipotle. Like, it's okay to me. Like, I, I love real Mexican food to the point where, like, I would rather go get a real burrito or some tacos than, than a Chipotle bowl or whatever. But it's True. cool. It's fine. Um, but at this point, look, it's getting everybody sick. I'm not trying to, you know, tell people don't go to Chipotle because I ain't trying to get sued. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. But I guess be careful. It is the thing. They they promote like they cook their food fresh. So what is it that's so tainted about their stuff? Like we got McDonald's, Taco Bell, White Castle, all these places that are seemingly serving grade D minus meat, right? Right. What are they doing? Are they cross contaminating? Like it ain't like it's that complicated. They got some chicken they cooking up, some steak over here, some carnitas. What is making everybody sick? Well, if it's actual meat and you just got random teenagers in here cooking it, you're probably not cooking it, right? I mean, awesome. that's the thing. If it's if it's fake meat, if it's some lower-grade meat that's already pre-cooked this, that, and other, it won't get you sick in that way. It just will kill you in the long run and all the processed crap, right? Yeah. So. Well, answer, I, and and because, look, I somebody worked at Dairy Queen back in the day, and I was working the grill. There's a reality when you got that frozen fake stuff, you just put it in the machine, basically, and it, it goes yeah. through the grill and it cooks, right? But like you said, when you got – you know, snotty 15-year-olds out there cooking the food, it might, you know, they might not be washing their hands properly. They might not, I don't know. But it says, they said tainted food. So I don't know. I'm, I'm curious as to what that is. You know, truthfully, what gets people more sick than meat on a regular basis is fruit and vegetables because we usually eat them raw. So when you cook meat, you usually cook off a lot of the things that can get you That's sick. True. Yeah, but wasn't it before I had to do something with their lettuce or something? I, I seem to recall that, yeah, but like some, you get the wrong thing and some lettuce and tomatoes, or whatever, and it's a wrap. But anyway, so more of the story is eat more White Castle and Taco Bell and eat less Chipotle. There you go. 
That's the diet advice straight from Kelly. Let me give you something crazier, though. Let me give you something crazier. The Kenyan government, our friends over in Kenya, were giving out COVID-19 care packages with a nice little bottle of Henny in there called a throat sanitizer straight from the governor. It's my people right there. Let's go. A little throat sanitizer take care of this disease. That's wild. Let's go. Let's go. That's my people back in the motherland. I appreciate y'all for keeping it real. You know, it might be ridiculous, but that's okay. Because, <laughs> look, we all stuck in the house. Ain't nothing wrong with having a little bit of Henny. You know what I mean? Whether it, whether or not, because my man got up there and said, like, look, the, the studies we've seen that alcohol is helping fight the disease. And then other people, like some U.S. organizations, like, yeah, no, that's not true, fam. But he was like, look, whatever. It's fighting disease. Look, all I know is this. Whether you got COVID-19 or not, when you sit up in the crib, some little henny might be beneficial to you. Now, you know, I know people live their lives different ways. I ain't telling you, you know, to be out here drunk and all the time, whatever. But, like, a little henny might make you feel a little bit better, whether it's because the alcohol is, is killing the disease or it's just killing your bad vibes. Whatever. A well, little henny's done. So they doing their thing. I appreciate them. And I especially appreciate, Will, my man getting out here to drop this knowledge looking like an extra in cool runnings with a, with like a fire retarded face mask and some is is some some stunner shades on. If you have it, go ahead and you Google the image of the Nairobi governor uh Mike Sonko out here looking like <laughs> uh, uh, he looking like a new age rapper or something. I don't know what's going on right now with the fit yeah. <laughs> Oh boy. He's like some type of yeah. It's, it's wild. It's really wild. Because, yeah, as the World Health Organization said, no alcohol doesn't, and he's out here sending Hennessy bottles. So the question is, why did Trump not send that with the stimulus check? Trump don't want us to feel good. He ain't, he ain't about them good vibes. <laughs> Trump, Trump about that negativity. And if Trump did it, he sent some Jim Bean, you know, because he's trying to, you know, reach a certain certain customer, maybe some that's moonshine right. or something like that. He wouldn't right. have sent the Henny. You know, that's a purely African thing right there. You know who do look like, now that I think about it? If you remember the Chappelle show when they had Black Bush, you know, and most deaf was the black head of CIA, he looked like the black head of CIA's right hand man. That's what he looked like. Like <laughs> like he in a black bush sketch. <laughs> so my man's out here wilding out sending folks hitting. We can buy the good vibes in Africa. Look, we I say we. I'm not in Africa. I've been to Africa. I appreciate it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And those are my people. But we about them good vibes out here in a tough time such as these. So I appreciate you, Kenny. Keep doing your thing. So he, he's living up to it. He's living up to whatever role he's trying to play. So it's pretty hilarious. So I did. I immediately text my guy from Kenya to confirm that that was actually what he's doing. And he said, yeah, that's, that's actually. That's actually. All these, like, it comes with, like, five mini bottles of Henny. So. Hey, look, I ain't mad. Don't, the kind of get in the gas station. Yeah. You know, just want to, to bless a drink real quick. Them little joints. Okay. Well, yep, I ain't mad at it. Hey, so something else crazy going on. Not crazy, but it's really, really popping right now. People blocked off their Sunday nights for the next five weeks so that they can watch this documentary, The Last Dance on the Bulls and Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. I know you got thoughts, Kevin. I know you got thoughts. We got a lot of places we can go with this. You love Michael Jordan, I know. Hey, MJ. MJ the Great. MJ the Great. But it is uh, – there's a lot going on in this documentary. It's actually super interesting. They only show the first two episodes, and they'll show two more this coming Sunday. 
But here's one thing. One of the big things in the first two episodes, right? They're talking about all the paychecks everybody's making in the 97, 98 season. So Jordan was making $33 million, right? And then his number two man, Scotty, was making $2.5 million a year, mm-hmm. right? Because he signed a long seven-year deal in 91. So what he said on there, right, Scotty said that he signed that because he wanted to protect his family. He signed seven-year, $18 million in 91 because he wanted longevity, could be injured, you know, even though if he didn't do that, he could have been making a lot more money. So mm-hmm. here's a question, Kellen. What would you do? Would you take the security of seven years or would you gamble your basketball career, potential injuries, all that, to get more? What would you do? Well, see, look, here's the thing. Like, you know, there's a million jokes to, to be got off about this, right? Like, first off, MJ being the killer that he is, fully okay with making $31 million more than his right-hand man. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, the yeah. one who he said he couldn't, you know, he said don't mention, don't say Michael Jordan's name without saying Scotty Pippen's name. You know, he said he could have done it without Scotty, giving Scotty all the praise in the world. But at the same time, when he knew Scotty was mad it, uh, about um, his contract, for those that didn't watch it, if you ain't a sports fan, we're we going to keep talking about this, though, because you don't have to be a sports fan to appreciate this. But Scotty Pippen in the last year, his deal being one of the – not lowest paid players in the league. Put it this way. Scotty was like the 125th uh, most highly paid player in the league. It might have very well been one of the two or three best players in the league, right, possibly. And he, so he wasn't getting paid anything, and this was for years. And so he was like, look, I hurt my foot. I ain't about to give up my summer, you know. I'm going to get this surgery done during the year. Y'all ain't paying me nothing, so I ain't about to play this whole year. And Mike came out there and said, yo, Scotty's selfish. Like, yo, Mike, you making $30 million more than this man. Like, now you might. Yeah. Obviously, you you worthy of getting whatever your money. But you're going to call the man selfish. You know he ain't getting no back, right? Not only that, at this time, Mike is the most popular player in the world, popular athlete, person, whatever in the world. I'm like, hey, man, you know, I ain't trying to check another man's wallet, but, you know, maybe hook Scotty up with a shoe deal. Like, I remember the Pippins. Do you remember the Pippins? Yeah. Yeah. Like, how yeah. much was he making for that? I wanted to look it up. I, I don't even know. But, like, that's one of them times where, you know, you go, might go over the next. Like, yo, my man is getting underpaid right now. I need him happy so that I can keep winning these ships so that y'all can keep, you know, selling these shoes. I need y'all to give this man, like, a $30 million shoe deal right, <laughs> right quick yeah, so, yeah. That, so that we can keep him happy and satisfied. You know what I'm saying? Like, we know um, that kind of happens now a little bit, like, you know, LeBron was putting pressure on Cleveland to get Tristan Thompson, all sorts of ridiculous amount of money. So I wasn't mad at Scotty. So I say all that to say, Will, to answer your question. I'm not mad at Scotty for doing what he did. It might not have been the smartest business decision. But if you watch the documentary, you know, Scotty Pippen went to college as like a six foot, six foot one dude. Wasn't even on the basketball team. He went to an NAIA school. If you don't know what that is, that's not Division One, Division Two, or Division Three. That's basically like we just got sports for the fun of it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Tickets probably cost a dollar fifty, whatever. Like that's it's nothing. Nobody from NAIA is thinking about going to the NBA. That's not what that is, right? He, he was an equipment to, manager there. Right. He was an equipment. He wasn't even on the team. That's what he was when he went to school. Now he wanted to play, so he worked on his game. They had a huge growth spurt. His six, seven. Next thing you know, he's the top five pick in the draft. So you got a dude that is just in school trying to make it. Not the NBA probably ain't nowhere on his radar, although apparently he told people he was gonna play in the league or whatever, but he wasn't on the team. 
And now a couple years later, he's in the NBA and he had the, in front of him, they say, look, you can sign this contract for, at the time it was decent money. And it's like $20 million, $18 million. And your family essentially will be set for life. I know we get tainted with like these numbers now with all these athletes, how much money they make it. $18 million will set your family for life. And, and well, you saw what Scotty came from, right? Yes. Basically, basically poverty. There was like a 12 person family. His dad and his younger brother, one of his brothers were in a wheelchair. He's like, yo, I, I got to take care of my family. This thing kind of came out of nowhere. This whole basketball NBA thing. And he signed it while he was still on his rookie deal. He wasn't no superstar at the time. She's so like, yo, I don't know how long this is going to last. So you tell me I can sign a seven-year deal and guarantee $20 million, or I can kind of risk it and sign a couple-year deal, and who knows what's going to happen? Because remember, at the time, that was decent money. So he signed seven yeah. years, 18. Well, he could have signed for, like, what, three years, seven, eight million? So right. he was like, look, I'm going to take the security so I can take care of my family, right? Mm-hmm. I understand it, so I'm not going to tell him he. I'm not going to say that was an incorrect decision or that was wrong or whatever, because I understand, like, you got the bird in the hand or the beer in the hand versus two in the fridge, you know? Looking back at it, it's like one of the greatest players ever, that I thought he could have made a lot more money. Um, but I get it. You know, you try to take care of people. No, yeah, I think it's – I mean, in his situation, it's a smart move, so you can't blame Scotty for making a bad business deal. Plus, nobody could have predicted, or at least they – he couldn't have predicted all the TV deals that were going to happen shortly that increased the revenue, that increased the amount that the players could make. Right. And he signed that extension in 91. Yeah. I don't know if it was before or after they won the title. I think it was before they won the title because they won the title yeah. in 91, 92, 93, then 96, 78. Yeah. So I think that was before they won the title when he signed that extension. So this is before the Bulls became the Bulls, before Scottie yeah. Pippen became Scottie Pippen. You know, so and before the NBA became the NBA in terms right. of his TV revenue, so he's making a smart deal. What I think is grimy about it, though, which is what they're focusing on, it seems like in this documentary, is how the organization went and restructured deals. Like, that's wild. You know, I mean, yeah, but at the same time, that would be very benevolent of them. <laughs> you know, yeah, but you could at least restructure. Like in those last couple of years, right? You could have restructured something. I'm not saying you pay him 33 mil like Michael, maybe, but mm-hmm. some respect when you when you're maybe you're a top five player in the league at the time, right? Mm-hmm. And you're making the 122nd in terms of pay. You got at least like meet halfway there. You know what I'm saying? Possibly, but 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 look look what happened. They didn't, and they still won six titles. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh-huh. And. And part of the re- – I mean, let's be honest. Is it possible that part of the reason they won six titles is because Scottie Pippen was so underpaid and they could afford to pay other guys? That's true. You know? That's um, true. I mean, who knows? And so from an organizational standpoint, like, yeah, they – those guys came out kind of looking like bad guys, but they won six titles. They had two three-peats. And the reality is once Scottie moved on, like, he was still a good player. For, for some years, but they got the best of his years and they had to pay. And that's what the NFL does. NFL's like, yo, we will take your all your best years and as soon as you get good enough to outplay your rookie contract or outplay this bargain deal, like, now nah, we're good. Go find some money somewhere else. <laughs> so, yeah. so, look, but I agree. And that's, you know, a point we'll talk about later is kind of about how people do business, but I agree with you. It would have been a good thing to do, but these folks ain't in the business of being kind and giving money away when they don't have to. They're like, hey, look, we told you not to sign it, Scotty. You chose to sign it. Now you're mad about it. We told you not to. 
that's what you wanted to do, and so now you got to live with that life or live those uh, the consequences of, of those decisions. So, you know, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So, yeah. well, let's let's move to a new segment within this same topic. I don't know what we're calling this yet. We're calling this Kellen Rant Reeves. Kellen Reeves rants. I'm trying to figure out how to move the R's together. Yeah, we'll this drop. We'll figure something. The time has come for America to hear the truth. We'll figure something out, but Rants. Rant I need to hear your thoughts. You went, you went and popped off on Facebook for anybody who, who uh, friends with you yeah, on Facebook yeah. and, so, and stirred the pot of Chicago and said, MJ is overrated. So look, 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 look. Here's the deal. This ain't talk, uh, first take or nothing like that. I ain't never saying nothing just to say it. However, sometimes I like exploring some of these things because we take all we we take certain things for granted and don't actually think about some things intellectually, right? So people got all up and got their panties in a bunch of that or whatever. But here's the reality: Michael Jordan is overrated. Now, hear the word I'm saying. Well, I'm saying Michael Jordan is overrated. I'm not saying he's bad. I'm not saying he's not great. I'm not saying he's not the best. I'm literally saying he is overrated. Why do I? What does overrated mean? Overrated means something that is not as good as people make it out to be, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's because of emotion, perception, whatever it is, right? Now let's look at who Michael Jordan is culturally. Like I was born in '84, so I was born, you know. I grew up in the Michael Jordan era. I had bull sheets. I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I had I remember I had bull sheets and blankets, right? I was never really a Bulls fan, but it was just Jordan, you know? And I had a Michael Jordan poster. I grew up watching him win those titles. I mean, some of them I was a little, little younger, remember? But I grew up watching Jordan win the titles. So I grew up in that Jordan age. Space Jam, want to be like Mike, all of that stuff, right? Um, and so, yeah, Jordan was always that guy. He was always the GOAT. That's what it was. That's how we grew up. So I'm not anti-Jordan in any way. However, as I grew up, got older, started watching ball and all of this stuff, I started seeing the way people talk about Jordan as if he was this infallible basketball guy who never lost and all of that. And heightened by now with the internet era and Twitter and all of this stuff and how people argue about basketball and, and sports and, and just everything, but how the critiques that other players get now are completely ignored from Michael Jordan. Right. And so as, as I'm looking at this, I'm like, you guys have overrated Jordan because now he's turned into a myth. Right. Not only because of his basketball greatness, but because of the Jordan brand. And that's a large part of it. Michael Jordan became a marketing empire, not because Michael Jordan is a marketing genius, but because people at Nike are marketing geniuses and they stamped his face all over. Now, he had he was a good pitch man for a variety of reasons, but the Jordan shoes are absolutely iconic. The Jordan brand in general is iconic. His commercials are iconic. Space Jam is essentially iconic, even though it's not even a good movie, right? So all the stuff around Jordan has been has been deified to the point where, like, he's not even a per- he's not a basketball player anymore. Jordan is an o- overall brand, and it's beneficial to us as people to, to like just say, "Oh yeah, Jordan was perfect." He like we look back on it. Like it's like sometimes people look back on high school and. Well, some people look at high school like it was the worst thing ever. But some people look and say, oh, that was the best time and da-da-da. Or college, whatever the time it was in their life when things were going good, you tend to ex- uh, exaggerate, right? And so people have exaggerated who and what Michael Jordan was because everything is getting mixed together in this 
big Jordan gumbo with, you know, with the brand and the mm. shoes that are still popular now to grow to then having 20 years of basketball players and athletes talk about how great Jordan was and how everybody loved him so much. He's turned into this basketball guy. And it wasn't true. Right. Jordan lost games. The Pistons kicked Michael's butt for years until Scottie Pippen became the Scottie Pippen we know. Right. Yeah. Jordan was Jordan won three ships in a row. And then he was like, this is too much. And then that stuff going on. He walked away from the sport, came back, suited up and played it, played that year, played in, in, in 95 and lost to Shaq and Penny. And, and I literally just heard somebody there, respected basketball person, say, oh, well, that doesn't really count. Why does that not count? Jordan is the same person that we give credit for being a maniacal competitor. And all he cared about was winning. And it was just winning, 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 winning. And so we people not – and I, this is – people always try to turn this into a Jordan versus LeBron thing. But this is not a – to me, it's not Jordan versus LeBron. But I find it interesting because the, uh, the arguments people use against LeBron, they don't also use against Jordan, right? So LeBron mm. is not for losing in the finals, right? It doesn't matter if he dragged the terrible team to the finals and lost in the finals. They just say, well, you lost in the finals, so you failed that year, right? Jordan – Joined the team that got to the conference semis the year before without him, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then lost again in the conference semis the next year. But it doesn't count because he wasn't playing the whole year. Like, it wasn't his choice not to play that whole year, right? He chose not to play. Then he chose to come back and he lost. And they're like, well, that don't matter, right? So people take any time Jordan lost, like those that time against Orlando, the time when he got so much pressure that he took a break off from basketball for a year. The years before that, where he wasn't getting to the championship because he didn't uh, beat the Pistons, they're like that doesn't matter. Those losses don't matter. The only thing that matters is that he didn't lose in the finals. Will does that make any sense at all? So it don't make no sense. Hold on, I'm, I'm gonna let you finish. It makes going. no Keep sense. It makes no sense to say, well, Jordan was six and zero in the finals, right? Great, he was 6-0 in the finals. What about all those other times he lost in the playoffs? That's like you're saying, well, the only time it matters is when you get to the finals. It doesn't matter if you lose before the finals. Which is saying, I'm going to punish you for losing later than I am for losing earlier. I'm going to punish you for having a better year. So, like, look at LeBron. Like, he's 3-6 three, three and six in the finals. He lost six times in the finals. How many times did Jordan lose before he got to the finals? That's stupid. It is absolutely stupid logic to say, I'm going to – to, it's a negative on your it's a negative on your record to lose later on that means according to that logic it would be better for LeBron or anybody else to lose in the first round than it would be to win three freaking series and get to the finals it's stupid it's sort of way that we that we deify and, and mythologize Jordan means he's overrated he's not he's still the greatest he's still the best he's still awesome but he's not quite what people want to make him to be. Boom, there you go. So you're saying LeBron is the GOAT. That's what I heard. <laughs> I, I had to, I'm man. Asleep. I'm going to sleep, Will. It's I'm for done. Cleveland, man, for Cleveland. Um, no, no, I think you're right, though. I think it is interesting how the brand, I think, in particular, has brought into new love. Because even – so we're the same generation, but I was born later, so I'm not – I'm young when these championships happen. I'm born in 91, so – it's not like yeah, exactly. It's not like I'm watching these championships when I'm under six. You know what I'm saying? But Jordan still is like the icon to live up to with basketball. It doesn't matter if you watch it or not, right? So it lives beyond that. And what's interesting though is you think about even when he made the playoffs, the records the Bulls had when they made those playoffs so many years, 
with like 30 wins, like 38 wins, years, yeah. 30 wins, right? But the same arguments against LeBron, right, is like, oh, he's in the weak East, but he missed the playoffs when he had 44 wins, you know? Right. Or, you know, so, I don't know. It is interesting. It is interesting to see the deification of Michael Jordan. Yeah, yeah that, and that's all it is, is people have made him to be something he's not because, um, you know, their reasons. Especially, you know, I'm out here in the Chicago area, and, you know, you can't say nothing about there's, there's people out here trying to convince me that, you know, Derrick Rose was clearly the best player in the league, you know? <laughs> like, so, you know, I know people start loving their, their um, you know, their stars and their athletes. But, hey, my, my thing is just, like you said, Jordan is great, but he's a great human being. Like, he, he was, in terms of basketball, he's not a basketball guy. Jordan had one of the all-time great coaches ever. He had one of the all-time perfect fits uh, for a number two player in Scottie Pippen, and those Bulls teams were actually good and talented teams. You know, though they and not look. Here's the other thing: maybe we can talk about another time. In the mid '90s, that era they were dominating, quiet as it's kept. The other teams weren't that great. The other teams weren't. The other teams. People want to talk about how great all these other teams were. And here's my question: If they were so great, where were they? The teams in the West. The only team Jordan played twice in the finals was Utah, right? So mm-hmm. if all these other teams were so great and, and Jordan just kept them from winning titles, why is it Phoenix only made it to the finals once in those eight, nine, ten years? Why is it uh, the Lakers only made it once early in the run? Why is it Portland only made it once? If those teams are so great, right? And they're these mm-hmm. championship teams. Why weren't they there all the time? The Knicks, if they were so great, how come the Knicks couldn't consistently beat the Pacers or the Pacers couldn't consistently beat the Knicks? How come with the two years Jordan didn't win the title, those two excellent, great all-time teams supposedly didn't win the title? Houston popped up, won two ships, and we ain't see them again. Did they, did they ever play, play Jordan when he came back the second time? Nah. Like, we love those guys because we grew up in that era. We got the NBA or NBC theme coming up. Reggie Miller, I love Reggie Miller, but was he really that great of a player? Like, in terms – I mean, he's a Hall of Famer, but was he so great that, like, oh, the fact that Jordan beat him means he's the GOAT? Eh, I don't know. Patrick Ewing, was Patrick Ewing the top three center of his time? Was he better than Robinson or Elijah Eh, I don't know. You know, those Knicks teams, who was the second best player on the Knicks teams? John Starks? Larry Johnson? Like, some, like we, we make these teams to be great – Awesome, like oh, everybody says Jordan kept everybody in this era from winning the ship. Did he? I mean, clearly he was winning them. So on some level, yeah. But right. I mean, Ewing had two years to win without him. He ain't do it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I didn't see Clyde Drexler in the finals again. I, I used to love to see it. The, the Seahawks, the <laughs> the Sonics. Like that was my favorite team. Gary Payton and um, and Sean Kemp only made it to the finals once. Right. So if these teams were so great. Why were we not seeing like a a, a, a Lakers Celtics type thing where he was beating up on the other great team of his era? Because there was no other great team of his era, Will. It, 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 the reality is that they weren't there. There was no other great team in that era that he was stopped that he was playing. There weren't. There was no Warriors. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. hey, there were. There was no Heat. You know, like there wasn't. There wasn't a Lakers or a Celtics or whatever that was out there competing against him. So Jordan was dominant. He was doing his thing, but we we lie about what it was he was actually doing because it makes us feel you know better. But he's great enough on his own that we don't need to mythologize how great Reggie Miller was. 
you know, or act like, you know, Jeff Hornacek was a lockdown defender. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? When he was a primary defender for, for the finals. You know what I'm saying? Like, we don't need to act like that. Let's just be real about it. So that's my thing, bro. I just want people to be real about it. That, that, that's it. Um, and I know they won't, but I'm out here having these thought exercises because I find it interesting. So, so again, what I hear you saying is LeBron is the go, right? Oscar I'm, trying to, I'm trying to, I was trying to pull that out your mouth, see if I can get more, uh, more people fighting you and stuff like that. You I know? mean, look, I, I, I'm not just gonna say something just to say it. I, I don't think LeBron the go, you know. But yeah. I think, I think Jordan is the greatest. But it is something that can be debated and discussed, and you know, it's not a, it, it's not an objective opinion that's subjective right we we can all differ on that so if you think lebron is the goat i think there's arguments to be made for that yeah so we've determined it here on the wild wild world that lebron is the goat all right yeah but well you know so look i know we're, we're talking about the last dance right um mm-hmm. there are there's a couple of things that i do they want to throw out to you about that though right and again you know this is having to do with sports and all of that but i think there's elements here uh, about Jordan and this whole story that I think are relevant to all levels or all types of life or all areas of life. I can't talk right now. Uh, and one of the main selling points that people have about Jordan in, in this documentary and one of the main things that we all kind of know about Jordan is he had this crazy maniacal drive and competitiveness to win at all costs, win at everything, all the time. He had to win, 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 win. That's all he cared about, right? Um and people have debated whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, and they've they've asked about, you know, is is that a positive trait? Now, the other ways to do it. So, I want to ask you. Well, let me throw that out to you. Like, what do you think about this whole idea of Jordan's crazy kind of almost sociopathic drive? And is that good, bad, and different? What do you think? I guess it depends what you're looking at, right? If you're looking at a team purely trying to get championships. You know, I guess that's a good thing. If you look at a person in real life, clearly it can't be that good, right? Like, it's to win at all costs is a self, like, it's in nature, it's selfish, right? Mm-hmm. You can want to compete and win, but to be like crazy at that is selfish. And I think, and maybe, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm tripping about this, but I think when we look at the life of him outside of basketball, right? Maybe that fed into those other parts, too, because he's seen as a selfish dude just mm-hmm. in the ways that he's done business, or at least that's the to the narrative. I don't know, you know, necessarily if that's true or anything like that, but um, I don't know. I don't know if I'd see it as good. I guess it depends on where the limits of drawing it is, because I don't think he drew those limits on the court, like as right. just on the court. Yeah, no, no, I think that's real. And there's an element, it, it's it's tough because, like I said, when it just comes to the winning part, just like, hey, we're playing basketball or whatever this, whatever sport, yeah, winning at all costs and doing whatever and all that stuff in a vacuum. So, yeah, that's great because you're, you're willing to push it further than anybody else and is getting these results. But it doesn't seem like it's something that can be turned on and off. That seems like a personality trait that – I don't know if you can just have that on the quarter, you know, in whatever field that you're in, right? Um, and so if that's how you're built and that's how you're made and that's that's how you are in all areas of life, yeah, it would seem like, and like you said, we've seen it with Jordan. Yeah, he 
kind of pushes it to the limit in other areas too. And it would kind of drive you crazy. If you like, if you know people that are really, really competitive, you know, like I like to think I'm competitive in areas of whatever, but people that are super competitive, it's almost like, man, what is wrong with you? <laughs> you know what I'm right. saying? Like, right. yo, we're just over here playing Madden. You are freaking out. Like you about to fight me because you're taking this element. Like, I don't want to be around you, <laughs> you know? And yeah. so it only works when you are the best. Like you can't be that guy it be the 11th man. You know, like I used to make a joke. They say if Kobe, if Kobe Bryant was 5'8", he'd be a serial, serial killer. <laughs> because I was just like, he's a sociopath, right? And I know that it's just a joke, so the through lines might not make sense or whatever, so don't think too much about it. But just the point was, if you're built like that, like that type of individual, and you don't have the physical talent or ability to make it happen, like it has to manifest itself in other crazy ways, right? And so that's kind of my second question. Which is, you know, because I'm thinking it, it can manifest itself sometimes to being ultra competitive in business and things of that nature. And something I'm, I, I wonder about often is can a just good, moral, kind, kind hearted person reach the pinnacle of success in sports? In business, and I, I do say the pinnacle, right? Because there are plenty of nice guys that played in the NBA or whatever. Like David Robinson right. is a nice guy; he won championships, or whatever. But to be the absolute best, like to be Jordan level, or or even like where LeBron, like where you just are dominating your competition, can you do that? And, and same thing with business, like Mark, Mark Zuckerberg and all that. Can you do that and reach that absolute pinnacle by and also be? just a good, kind-hearted person that does things, I guess, morally well. Hmm. See, I, yeah, that's tough. I think I think off the initial, I'd say no. You'd have to convince me otherwise. Because just the nature of any, like, the nature of anything that we have in this world, business, sports, all those things, right, is about power in whatever realm that is, right? Mm-hmm. And to grasp after power um, to try and get that at all costs automatically, again, makes you have to be self-oriented and borderline obsessed to get to those levels, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's just how it is. And anybody who's truly self-oriented and training themselves to continue to be more self-oriented in getting better, this, that, and other, can't actually be other-centered, which would be the core of, you know, actually loving people or having some good moral. And I'm not saying you can't do good stuff, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, all those guys at the top, you know, Kobe and Jordan, if we're just talking to sports, right? I'm sure they did good stuff. They gave their money people. They did good things, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, that type of drive, I feel like it's got to take you somewhere else. Like how many CEOs, you know, that are really like, I don't know, out here, giving and stuff like that. Like I'm, I'm, I'm just all about y'all. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, you, you're right. I think about it too. Like, you, even as you say, like, self-focused versus other-centered. I mean, if we it, – because it's easiest if we stay with sports. I mean, if you're going to be the best and the greatest and your team is going to win and all that, like, there's an element that we always hear about of pressure that you put on the people around you to, you know, to push themselves to succeed at the highest level. And I'm sure there's an element where you could do that, you know, just by – you could push people with their love for you, I guess. Like, they don't want to disappoint you because they care about you so much, <laughs> you know. And I guess somehow that can push them to, you know, to their limits. But the more, much more common element of that is fear, 
Like mm. my teammate here, Jordan or whoever, I, I'm, I'm going to push myself to the point, to my breaking point, because if I don't, this person here is going to be breathing down my throat or he's going to get me out of here. He's going to punch me in the face or, you know what I'm saying? Or whatever it is. So you're, you're driven by fear. Maybe the, you might, might even appreciate that at some point, you know, because, Oh, well, I, I reached the height. I never thought I could reach, but there's still an element of for the person that's doing the pushing, you're not being kind, you know what I'm saying? Necessarily. Or you're not being, um, caring towards the other person because there's always the possibility that they'll break. Like we always hear about Jordan breaking like Kwame Brown and some of his other teammates that couldn't take that pressure. And he's like, good, I don't care because if I can't take it, I want it out of here. Right? So you're breaking a whole lot of A's. You're cracking a whole lot of A's to make omelet. (laughs) You know what I mean? And same thing with businesses. I mean, I'm not a businessman in the sense that I, you know, I don't know all the ins and outs of high level corporate like acquisitions and things of that nature. Right? But there's elements of business practices and things of that nature where you are inherently taking advantage of people, right? Yeah. You're paying, you're paying your janitors $9 an hour, you know, for very important jobs. You know, you are structured because we're in a capitalist society and then, you know, I don't want to get down to the world of how moral or not capitalism is, you know, in order to make money, you are selling products for more than what they're worth or services for more than what you provided them for. And you're paying people a, a low enough number where you can profit and make money, you know, you know what I mean? And so it's, and you're probably buying other businesses from people. Like there's just a lot of stuff that goes into that. Um, I don't know. Like if you can look back at if those folks can look back and say, yes, I tried to always operate morally and, you know, in good faith and, and putting others before myself to do that. And, you know, again, this is just kind of a thought exercise question. So I'm not even trying to cast judgment on folks or anything like that, yeah. but it's yeah. just something I always find funny. Like, you know, could could you be Michael Jordan if you were really being a nice person? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. that's and, a tough. It's a tough question, man. Well, because I think even like even on the business side, right, or just the way it's all built, you know, ultra capitalistic society, right? It's cutthroat, right? To get its profits over people, you, to get to the top, you you have to sacrifice those in front of you, essentially, right? right? And the more money and power and things that we accumulate, the more we're enslaved to those things, right? Mm-hmm. I, you know, so it's like, can you be generous if you have a lot of money? Sure. Like, is it possible to be a good person and have power, influence, and money? Sure. But I don't know if that's the case, if that's what you're chasing after. Because some people just run into money and influence through all sorts of random ways, right? Well, you could even say like a Bill Gates who invented something or people that have, yeah. you know, just kind of on the front. Like even Zuckerberg, I know I use his name, but you know, he created something and now he got other things along with his story. That, that yeah, that question. changed his narrative, right? Yeah, but, but when you're a creator, I suppose, you know, that, right. that's a different thing. So there's ways to get maybe to the top, but it seems like that's by maybe not happenstance, but something else other than, my goal is to get to the top of whatever this is, right? Yeah. I feel like to be that type of oriented person will at least make it very hard to be somebody other than a selfish person. It's like, it's like politics. Like I remember yeah. going back with years back when Obama was first coming onto the scene and people were, uh, you know, making all these claims about him, about how great of a guy he was and all those sorts of things. And my thought at the time was, you know, I don't know, is he? Because the whole nature of politics is, well, politics is political, but, you know, to get ahead of politics, you are compromising, you're making deals, you're doing those sorts of things, right? You have to make yourself 
a viable candidate to all sorts of different people with all sorts of different goals. And so my question was at the time, you know, I was younger, I was thinking about this is, huh, can somebody, you know, that gets into politics, can you get to the level of president or near that level, truly sticking to whatever your actual beliefs are you know like if you throw a list of 100 topic issues out there and it's like this is what i feel about all 100 of these things yeah can you get to the level of being president without having to compromise or bend your thoughts or morals or ignore your your views on certain things mm-hmm. on, on a high number of them and i don't know because there's so many different people that you have to appease to get up to that point this business and corporation is giving you you know money to represent them on some level. And so my thought has always been, well, you know, once you get up to the level of president, you're no longer, it's not a person that is sticking to their ideological guns. Maybe they got a couple big ideas that they're sticking to, but for the most part, you know, I don't know. I don't see how it would be possible to say, I'm not going to compromise. I'm going to stick to what I believe and get the support that you need. And so uh, whether it's Obama or anybody else that, you know, that's something I stood on a bit at that time. So it's kind of, kind of the same thing here. Yeah, no, that and that, I mean, it goes in some different direction, I think, particularly in our partisan politics, which we'll talk about more later on our Patreon exclusive extended conversation. But hey, that nice plug, yeah, you see what I did there. But I mean, in our system that's built off of two parties and lobbying and stuff like that, I think that makes it even more impossible. On top of the fact that, again, you're in the mindset to get to the top of something that makes it hard to be you know, other centered at all if you're trying to make it to the top. So, well, something to think about, you know, again, we got thoughts, hit us up. Let us know what you think. Hit us in the DMs, you know, Facebook. (laughs) How do you want to? to. Yeah, send Um, letters, write letters. Yes, yes. Well, before we move on to uh, some other things we have for you guys and later on our Patreon exclusive, they just want to remind you, I know for the last couple of weeks we've been letting you guys know, we want to remind you again uh, about Stitcher Premium. Go ahead, download Stitcher, uh, go, go to Stitcher on your computer, whatever, and use the uh, promo code WILDWORLD and you get Stitcher Premium free for 30 days. Again, that promo code is WILDWORLD, not Wild Wild World, just one wild, free for 30 days. All right, so... If you're like, what is Stitcher? You're not familiar with it. It's a premium subscription service. Um, and Stitcher Premium in particular uh, it includes bonus episodes and exclusive shows uh, from hit podcast hosts, gives you early access to popular podcasts, as well as ad-free shows. So if you're into comedy, there's shows like Comedy Bang Bang and WTF with Mark Marin, and one of my favorites, How Did This Get Made? Uh, if you like true crime, there's cr- uh, criminology, or uh, My Favorite Murder, or even Marvel's, Wolf- Marvel's Wolverine. Uh, so you know, if you like comic books too. If you like pop culture, there's also Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness or LeVar Burton Reeves. LeVar Burton, who was a big part of my childhood as well as possibly yours, will read Rainbow. Um, you know, he has an excellent <laughs> podcast too. So um, after your free trial stitcher premium is uh 4.99 a month or 34.99 a year and again use that cr- uh, promo code wild world and you get that 30 days free so go ahead and check that out um we'd appreciate it very very much here yep stitcher premium good stuff and with that we're going to move on to a special interview portion with dr joshua jip he's a professor at trinity evangelical in new testament uh, and we talk about in this interview things from the church and politics to 
hospitality, things during COVID-19, how Jesus is king, even in COVID-19. So some interesting things. And then after this interview, Kel and I are going to come back, chop it up in our extended conversation. You can get on Patreon. Again, patreon.com forward slash kingdom dreamers. Any tier, you get this exclusive content. We're going to come back, chop it up about the American church and partisan politics in America and just kind of the different divides between how churches approach politics, the dangers, and what we need to be doing. So meet us back for Patreon. Enjoy this interview. See you. So I want to welcome Dr. Joshua Jip to the Wild Wild World podcast, which is part of the Kingdom Dreamer movements. So Dr. Jip is a professor at of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, author of a handful of fire books, family man, and a true Midwesterner, as I understand it. Honored yep. to have been a former student of his and to continue to work uh, or learn from your work in particular. So tell the people, who is Josh Jip? Who is Josh Jip? Yes. Yeah, that's uh, wow, that's, that's, not the, that's not the first question I was, ex- I was expecting. Um, yeah, I, uh, I am, uh, as you said, I'm a family man, um, married to my wonderful wife, Amber, um, who uh, we met at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. We were both doing MDivs, and uh, she's um, been in college ministry for 15 years. We've got three kids, Josiah, uh, eight, Lucas, seven, Sapna, we just adopted from India. She is five, um, and I teach, I teach New Testament. I love God's word. I, uh, of course, uh, fundamentally a son of God, beloved child, um, called into fellowship with his son, trying to, uh, to love him and to obey him, albeit imperfectly in the world in which we live. So yeah, those are a few things about me. I'm a baseball lover. I see that okay. Colorado Rockies. Yeah, I grew up as a right kid now. in Colorado, so I was in Ohio you know as a teenager. Colorado's a kid. You know, I'm going uh, to put on my twins hat for the rest so of this interview. Too. So my co-host will appreciate that because he's yeah. from Indianapolis. So he's a, yeah. he's a Minnesota guy, so he'll appreciate right. the, the twins yeah, gear. Yeah, yeah very cool. The Rockies never do anything, so it just, you well, know, it's you a know. humble Position. I, I guess it's twins it, it's been 1991 since the twins have won a world series uh i was a 10 year old back then so you know i'm i'm i'm, I'm biding my time too yeah, that's fair that's fair such as baseball yeah. we miss sports in our time of quarantine but I, I guess as a family man so i'm a new father yeah. man just had a kid in yeah. january so you yeah. got any tips for a for a father mm. How to- yeah i i would say i in <sighs> Enjoy it, and uh, there's going to be a lot of hard work um, that you're going to be, you know, putting in. Obviously, the mundane, the the day to day. I've been reading books on happiness, uh, um, written some by Christians, but a lot by non Christians. And it's interesting. So many people say one of the hardest things that they do is uh, the early years of parenthood. But then also on these surveys, almost everybody will say one of the most satisfying things they ever did in life was, you know, raise, raise their children. Yeah. So there are going to be some hard times, some mundane times, but I would say um, uh, enjoy it. There's a lot of joy to come in my experience uh, from children. Have fun, have fun with them um, and uh, enjoy the opportunity you have to um, be a culture shaper for the child in your life. Um, you have a chance to, um, I, I, you know, I don't want to say, um, make them into your mirror image, but 
you really have a chance, right, to pass on yeah. the values uh, that you you believe in. Um, uh, teach them scripture. Um, teach them, you know, read read good books to them. Have fun with them. Show them that you're on their level. Like it, there's there's a lot of joy I think that can be had. So, uh, yeah. culture making for children. Yeah, I never thought about yeah. that way. That's, that's yeah, a I mean, way to think about it. Yeah. Yeah, you have a chance to shape them and mold them, you know, in really, really, really powerful ways. God's gifted you and your yeah. wife with that. And they'll never have anybody like the two of you that are are pouring into them. So not yeah, to put not, too much pressure on you. But, not as helpful though. I mean, I'm yeah. super early into it. He's only 10 weeks old. So it's like, yep. yeah, yeah. I yeah. have no idea what's coming. You're ahead, not doing so the culture making yet. You're, you're making yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm just trying to make sure he's survive. still kicking it and doing, yeah, the basic things. <laughs> That's so. important. But yep. it's been good. So I do want to shift then. So you've released a ton of books, which have been super helpful. I guess not a ton, but a good amount that have been super helpful. So you released the Crisis King, right? Which is yep. Pauline Christology in right. 20, 2015, right? Yep. Yep. And then Saved by Faith and Hospitality, 2017. And then the Reading Acts kind of handbook from Cascade in 2018. All of those yep. have been super helpful in my ministry. And actually when this airs, I'm going to be doing a giveaway with the Kingdom Dreamers to give away a copy of your Saved by Faith and Hospitality book because that's been such a powerful book in my ministry. Oh, that's life. great. Very so cool. I'll be excited Thanks for well. that. But yeah. you, have a, you have a new book coming out, right, in the near future. Yep. Can you tell us anything about that at all? Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, it's called The Messianic Theology of the New Testament. In some ways, it's a surprise to me because I've never been the biggest fan of New Testament theology. Um, in part because sometimes it will try to make, uh, it, it will impose sort of a false unity on the New Testament or that will leave a lot of the interesting things out. And I don't want to do that. Um, so I'm in this book, not trying to say that what I am, let me say what I am trying to say. I am trying to say that a foundational thread for the New Testament texts are the earliest Christian confessions that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus is Lord. And that these uh, early Christian confessions uh, are not just confessions, but they are generative theologically for uh, the different books of the New Testament. Uh, and they are also generative theologically for us as we're thinking about how we move to do dogmatic and systematic theology. So it, it, it's not arguing that this is the only theme. It's not uh, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, uh, but it is, it is arguing that it is the, cent uh, uh, the central thread. Um, and it can be supplemented with others, but yeah. So I'm basically working through the first section are the compositions of the New Testament, showing how Messianism uh, is worked through Matthew, Mark, Luke, Paul, Hebrews, Revelation, uh, the New Testament texts, and then the second section goes through uh, dogmatic categories, scripture, uh, Christology, soteriology, um, sanctification, politics, and so forth, um, to show how Jesus is the Messiah is generative for theological thinking as well. So anyway, that book okay. uh, will be out with Erdman's uh, sometime at the end of the year, um, I think November. So. Okay, so... That's pretty yeah. soon then. I was thinking it was 2021 or something. So I got to get my, yeah. my pre-order in then. Yeah, get it in. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> I, I appreciate having, a, you know, those three or four fans of which you are one, Will. Who, hey, uh, man, know, I got to I gotta make sure I get them. I got that uh, that Axe Handbook right away. I had that thing uh, pre-ordered. It would come to my, my door. Thanks, and it man. has been helpful. So it actually has been. Thank you. 
no fault. Awesome. I don't just throw my money at you because I know you. Totally. I mean, I, I want to like, uh, we, you know, we have the pressure of at times, you know, our audience, do we write for the Academy and sort mm -hmm. of, you know, get some of the professional accolades and keep those people as, you know, conversation partners. Maybe I portrayed that a little too cynically because I, I don't feel totally cynical, cynical towards it. Yeah. Um, but then there's also a sense of like, yeah, I want to write books that are helpful for people, you know, that, yeah. that are, that are good, that, uh, help people with their lives and even if it's yeah. just, just well, I, felt, I feel like all your books at least the you know those three have been really yeah. balanced in terms of academics in that I can I can apply it on the ground pastorally as well cool. yeah, um, so, so so you're striking that balance um, so I'm you. excited for this for this next book so the other thing I saw and I just saw that there was a YouTube video released on it but I didn't get to watch it but I saw a tweet about uh -huh. you speaking to a group at Trinity uh -huh. about I think Mosaic about Christ's King, even during COVID-19. And I was a little jealous that I didn't get an invite to that Zoom meeting. And I'm going to blame that on <laughs> Daniel Hardman for that. It's but, not my fault. <laughs> exactly. I'm going I'm to call him up and blame him for that. But I figured I'd try to pry some of that content out of you here. Yeah. Could you just give us maybe the cliff notes of what it looks like for Christ to be King in this season of COVID-19? Yeah, yeah, sure. No problem. I, you know, my, my topic I was originally assigned before all the COVID-19 stuff happened was, um, is it the series is on kingdom and politics. And I thought I would give a talk that I gave uh, like a year and a half ago that would talk a little bit more about how do we relate to the governing authorities? How do we handle the fact that we are uh, citizens of Christ's kingdom, but then we have to navigate sort of our our earthly citizenship here mm -hmm. with different nation states. But yeah, in the, in the, uh, and use Paul to reflect on that. But in this season, I thought it made more sense to think about how, how does Christ's kingship um, enable us to live as faithful citizens of Christ's kingdom in the period in which we're finding ourselves right now. So yeah, real quickly, I, I made one thesis and then gave three practices that followed from the thesis. Uh, one was, I mean, super simple, um, that whether it's COVID-19 or whether it's pre, post, anytime, right, for those of us who confess Jesus as Messiah and Lord, Christ is King, the crucified, resurrected, and throne Messiah is at the right hand of God the Father. He's the one to whom we owe singular obedience and allegiance. Uh, he has the power of life and death, and so uh, in every way, we're looking to him to shape our life as God's people, uh, whether those are, that's our politics, whatever that would happen to be. So if that's our starting point, then I argued there were, not argued, but I mean, suggested that, you know, there are at least three practices, and I'm sure we could, you know, flesh out more, but at least three practices that would flow from that. One is <clears throat> we can, you know, be faithful citizens of Christ's kingdom and live this out by uh, pursuing economic justice and generosity um, uh, as opposed to a politics of hoarding and security and mm -hmm. self-focus. Um, and that might be some of the humorous, you know, images that come to mind in terms of hoarding toilet paper or whatever it may be. But some of it's real, you know, in terms of uh, we shouldn't be, some of us don't have right now, some of us have lost jobs. And so I know we're all in different places, but um, but wherever we're at, we should be looking at ways to continue our giving. Um, church, you know, don't stop giving to your church, your ministries, your missionaries. We should be looking even what are ways for our local neighbors and people that are on our block 
to make sure that we're giving and, and caring and making sure that they're okay, as opposed to you know uh, being obsessively focused with our own safety and security. Hmm. So that was one. Um, the second practice I argued was um, uh, solidarity with the um, uh, with vulnerable, disenfranchised people. So in some ways, this isn't this can flow from the first practice, but um, the people that are already disenfranchised, it feels like are even now, you know, have more threats and more fears, whether those are, you know, immigrant communities who are continuing to serve us during these days, even at risk to themselves, or, uh, or whether it may be the elderly or the incarcerated who often are already the forgotten people in our society and now are located in these tight spaces where contracting the virus can be more deadly and um, uh, so what are ways in which we you know can press into solidarity um, with these people and then the third one is really um, we can lament and grieve with hope so mm-hmm. instead of having cute answers uh, about everything's going to be okay it's all going to go back to normal we're going to be fine I think we can be people that lament serious losses whether it's um, whether it's, whether it's jobs, whether it's economic stability, whether it's just, yeah, social gathering with our friends or our church, or whether it's even as serious as illness or loss of friends or loss of loved ones. Mm-hmm. Um, like we, we actually can be people that lament, that grieve, that experience the weight of that loss instead of peddling, you know, trite sayings. And things may not actually, I, don't, I, I, I mean, I don't know, like I have no idea, right? Things may not go back to normal, yeah, you know, true. for some of us. Um, but so we can lament and grieve that while at the same time being marked by people who have real hope, knowing that our lives are secure in Christ. Um, uh, I think of Romans 8, he is at the right hand of God. He is the one who has authority to condemn and give life. Christ Jesus, the one that we worship, who's conquered uh, death, life, things present, things to come. And, and as a result, we won't be separated. So I, I don't know, hopefully, uh, those are the, those are the cleft notes as, as quick, quickly as I could do them. No. The one, one thesis, three practices. Yeah, so. no, those are super helpful. They actually, they answer a lot of the questions I was even going to ask, which is kind of, kind of crazy. So one, one thing I was going to ask in particular with COVID-19, you answered a lot of it, but maybe if we could go a little deeper mm-hmm. is this idea of the, uh, the people of God being, people who are can both deeply lament and have an enduring hope right Um, and unfortunately that tension seems all but lost in a lot of western church context uh Mm -hmm. don't we don't know what the word lament means or how to go through with that Mm -hmm. so what would you say would be maybe some practices that uh the church can do to start to recapture that tension of being people who can actually grieve and lament while having this enduring hope in Jesus? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I think, you know, the Bible, Paul says in Romans 12, weep with those who weep. And um, I think uh, we can embrace the fact that emotions and feelings are a real part of how God created us as humans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, um, and so when um, I think of many ways in which to protect myself uh, to make myself maybe um, not invincible, but sus- non- not as susceptible as I should be to other people, I can 
develop defense mechanisms so I don't enter into people's people's grief. Um, mm. And I think, uh, you know, one practice, at least for me, I see my wife do this really well, and I, uh, you know, often am convicted to try to do it better, is to really, really experience people's pain. Um, mm. uh, you know, our Asian American brothers and sisters speaking about the the racism, you know, some of the fear that they have, some of the, you know, you know, very real fears that they have for, I think it's some of my students, for their parents who are older and maybe don't speak English as well. And um, yeah. uh, like hearing those fears and certainly not trying to explain them away, but also right. just sitting with them and, and, and feeling the, the sadness and the weight, like that's not right. That's, that's not how it's supposed to be. That's evil. There are wicked, you know, there's wickedness mm. um, in the world when people are engaging in scapegoating of others. So, so that's just one example, but I think, you know, really trying to find time and space not to protect yourself, but to experience the sadness and brokenness that someone else might be experiencing. I think that's a good human flourishing life in Christ to yeah. uh, be attentive to those, uh, to those emotions. And then, yeah, and then cry out to God. You know, obviously we have the Psalms, we have Lamentations, we have other texts that give us opportunities for how to think about how to, you know, bring our our sufferings, our pains to God. Mm-hmm. So that, that would be one thing I would say. I think for me, there's also a sense though in which um, uh, maybe I'm being overly influenced by my reading of Augustine's City of God lately, but he talks about um, you know, suffering sometimes being the therapeutic, therapeutic, not really in the way we mean it in the 21st century, but, um, God does something to our souls sometimes through suffering by weaning us away from some of our idols and false loves. And so insofar as there are things like my security, you know, whether it's job security or whether that's, man, is anyone actually going to buy my book in November 2020 of COVID-19? You know, like, yeah. I mean, certain, certain, you know, things that may not be bad in and of themselves. I mean, sports can be one of these as well. Like, please give me baseball back. Right. But, yeah. but there's also a part of like, what are some of these false, some of these like goods or, um, things that God has given to us that are not meant to be delighted in and loved, they're okay to be used and appreciated. Um, but this might be a time where I uh, get some of those things peeled away, ultimately to hopefully drive me to a deeper love for the supreme good for for God and how God's revealed himself in Christ. So, um, so anyway, those are some of the things I'm thinking about. I, I guess the last thing I'll say is, and not to take it to well, to take it to a, a seemingly somber, dark note, I mean, yeah. um, we are all going to die. Uh, and we are, you know, the, the only thing that is eternal is God, uh, his word. Um, we are like uh, grass um, that's here today, that's gone tomorrow. And our only hope is in what is eternal. Mm. So having the chance, I don't want to die. Like, I don't want, you know, I'm not like, this is not something I'm delighting in or looking, you know, or whatever, but I do think it's an opportunity to, uh, to refocus where our hope actually lies. And, um, Mm. it's, uh, it's in our confidence that God has raised Christ from the dead. We too, one day will die if the Lord doesn't return. 
before then. And our hope is that he will resurrect us and give us life and recreate this world and make it new and make it right. So anyway, those are some of things I've been thinking about kind of in response to your question, Will. No, that's, yeah, that's super helpful. Just the kind of paradigm shift of what the idols that are being stripped away potentially in the suffering and then being able to um, actually spend the time to grieve with those who grieve, weep with those who weep. I think those are helpful things for the church. And it's, yeah, I think it's something we really need right now in this season. So, um, yeah, super helpful. I guess shifting to to one more question, I guess it's similar but slightly different note. And actually might apply to what you were going to talk about, I guess, to uh, the group of students at Mosaic. One of the kind of goals of the Kingdom Dreamers, which is the network that this podcast is under, is to create content that helps people imagine a new world according to the way of Jesus, right? And one of the particular challenges for Christians today in the United States is navigating a world of contradicting narratives and half-truths or just flat out lies that come with the ties that have happened with Christianity, nationalism and partisan, our partisan politics system in the United States. What would you say, I guess this is two questions. What would you say to help those in the church navigate this reality that we're seeing? Um, And what would you say it looks like to walk faithfully in the way of Jesus in this particular context where, these narratives are kind of interweaving in ways that they shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a huge question and a good one. I, I, you know, and there is one of the, one of my pet peeves will is ways in which people, when they try to answer this question or uh, will, will pick one passage and then just use that as the hermeneutical key for everything. Mm -hmm. When in reality, the Bible has sort of, they're not contradictory, but multi- but multiple texts that really speak to what you're getting at. And uh, probably I get most annoyed when Romans 13 basically is sort of held up as carte blanche. Everything the government says has been ordained by God. You must do it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I think is a, a not only selective reading, but misappropriation of that text as well. So I guess if I make it as clear as possible, my, my first starting point would be my, that first thesis I mentioned. We we are primarily citizens of the kingdom of Christ. We owe allegiance to him and to him only, right? Father, son, and spirit, right? The eternal city, the kingdom of Christ, that is uh, the one um, to whom we give our obedience, our love, direct our loves, um, our supreme allegiance. Now within that arrangement, right? God has ordained there to be um, uh, uh, people that are above us, whether they're civil authorities or they're governing authorities. And so one of our tasks then is to, I, I think, absolutely, to try to be at peace with those who are above us, to pray for them, to look for ways to, to honor them, you know, to uh, when our governors say, we're going to engage in social distancing because this is for the common good, yeah, right? Yeah. There, There's not a, well, I'm going to be flippant, but I, I have a level of respect for health professionals and doctors and people that are scientists of infectious diseases that are speaking to the governor and it's, and I evaluate that and it sounds wise and therefore, you know, um, there's a level of Romans 13 coming into play there. I think we also 
um, want to be at peace with all people because we and want to seek the welfare of the city because this allows us to uh, be a people that are not rebellious primarily as our primary pr primary identity or something in terms of wanting to engage in coups or overthrows of these earthly governments. That's not where the real power is. Rather, we want to be at peace with them uh, insofar as we're able so that we can pursue our mission, so that we can, you know, um, uh, uh, do things without uh, governmental interference and so forth. That said, there are other texts also that come into play and we see it in many different ways. So, you know, in the book of Revelation, not just in Revelation, but where the government can usurp authority and power um, and thereby become an idolatrous force that exerts not good for uh, its people, but ill or for evil. So insofar as government right is or leaders that are above us are perpetuating policies and practices that harm people and destroy people, then the church, because we have been called to be citizens of Christ's kingdom and to love God's people that he's created, I think are called to be those that are working towards uh, uh, against injustice as a foretaste of the sign to come, right? Whether that means uh, criticizing, you know, um, uh, certain policing practices uh, and uh, whether that means advocating for uh, undocumented workers, immigrants here to be treated with justice and equity, right? Um, that may bring us into conflict at times with some of the actual governing authorities, but we, we know then who our ultimate allegiance is to in those instances. And so there will be times where hospitality or justice for someone might um, be what we choose uh, over in that instance, Romans 13. And lest anyone think this is being like flippant with the scriptures, I think of, you know, the well-known Good Samaritan story where Jesus said, I mean, the, the genius of that parable is basically everybody in, in the parable, uh, it, the, the three people in the parable are going to have to choose which laws they follow, right? They're all going to be lawbreakers and law keepers. But Jesus expects, of course, they should know that what is going to be highest, right? What's going to be the hermeneutical key there for how to pr practice, uh, how, how to live is going to be love of God, love of neighbor. In other words, Leviticus 19.18 is going to uh, supersede uh, contacting ritual purity. Um, ideally, right, in the parable, you do both. But sometimes these laws bring you into conflict with one another. Um, and yeah. anyway, hopefully that makes sense. Will. I, I, I know I talked for a long time and may not have even fully got to your question. No, no. Well, I knew it was back. a massive question. You could have 10 books in a yeah. know, sermon series on it, I guess. But no, that's super helpful, especially the, I guess, recognizing the tensions that the scripture brings and how that's lived out faithfully is not, a, is not as simple as we like to make it. We like to make things very simplistic and yep. black and white, but, you know, there's... Uh, yeah kind of these grays where you have to there's something higher than the other mm -hmm. right i think that's super helpful yeah. uh, in a very i guess divided um church where you know we're taught to divide very black and white and categorize things not yeah absolutely i mean i think we all want and crave simple answers and um, yeah and you know in one way being a follower of jesus is simple you know there it's it's not uh, rocket science and in another way knowing how knowing the scriptures well and knowing what that looks like in 
mm. you know, challenging world, you know, uh, requires, uh, requires knowing the scriptures well, it requires prayer. And I also think it requires communal discernment together as God's people where we're, we're look, we're praying, we're looking at these texts and we're saying, Hey, what should we be doing here? This isn't an easy decision, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's particularly key, I think for the American church that, you know, so much of a, our identity is super individualistic that we, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, that we don't Absolutely. come in as a community and wrestle with the scriptures together. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and or whatever more talking heads that, you know, yeah. have an inordinate amount of authority in the world in which we live, you know, as, yeah. as certain, uh, uh, personalities to answer every question for us. So yeah. And we, yeah. Ones that support our already experienced reality. Yeah, so we can't right. see outside of our, yeah, our own experience and see others experience and come together and get the fullness of scripture, the fullness of life in community. So I yep. think that's, I think that's going to be what's needed in the church as we transition. And maybe as we figure out how to transition out of this COVID-19 season, yep. who knows how, yep. how I look, but I guess on a lighter note as we come, because I don't want to take up your whole afternoon, even though we could talk all afternoon, it'd be fun. Uh, But what what would you say in this season of quarantine, what would you say you miss most in the season of quarantine? And what would you say has been the best thing being locked Uh up in your house for a couple months? Yeah. Well, I'm going to sound like an awful person if I say the thing I miss most is baseball. Hey, I am mad at you. (laughs) Oh, man. I mean, so I – you know, I like watching Minnesota Twins is just sort of like my comfort food. You know, it's, uh, you know, sometimes like those broadcasters, I feel like, you know, Burt Blylevin and Dick Bramer and those guys, I feel like, you know, we're, we're kindred spirits. Um, uh, and then I, you know, I, I, uh, I coach my uh, two boys baseball team and we've been, we've been even working out like this uh, off season, like going to the facility and, Okay. You know, working on our pitching and our hitting and so like not being able to get out there and then I love those kids and the dads you know like it's it's been a highlight uh the last couple of summers getting to to know some of these other fellow Chicagoan dads and their kids and so so I really I do I really miss that will you know less yeah. I, you know I, I guess if I open myself up to being judged for not saying um my brothers and sisters in Christ at Ted's or at <laughs> But I'm seeing, you know, a lot of them over Zoom still, you know. Right, uh, right. Yeah, so I miss that. I do, what do I enjoy in terms of the time of, yeah, quarantine? Um, man, I've been, I've been baking and cooking a lot. Like every, mm-hmm. I've been, I've been making dessert. I'm not, it's not normal. I don't usually like bake right. pies and cookies and, you know, cakes and stuff. But I've been doing that well and, and that's been good. And I've been I've been making all our dinners in the evening and trying out some new recipes. So I've been I've been enjoying all of that, and yeah, being together as a family, like having our rhythms kind of slow down, certainly has challenges. We're doing the e-learning, you know, at home oh, with yeah. our kids, and that, that certainly has ups and downs. But but it's also been you know a, a great chance to you know slow down as a family, spend more time together. And, hmm. No, that's helpful. And it, hey. I miss baseball a lot. That's one of the things I miss, I think, in my adult life the most is that you can't, you can go pick up basketball and do things like that. You can't just go pick up baseball. Like it's so hard to get people to do so. I'm ready for my child to get to that age where we can start this (laughs) T-ball and and slide from there and get close. I know. 
some of our dad, some of the dads were like, do we do this for our kids or for ourselves? Cause there's, there's a lot of people that feel that's exactly like you will. Yeah. yeah including me. And, and I have to sometimes tell my boys, if you guys ever decide you, you, you don't want to do baseball, I don't want to be one of those dads that, you know, they like that's keep true. playing because their dad wants them to. Yeah. That's but, true. Strike that balance. But hopefully my kid enjoys baseball. We're yeah, praying towards yeah. those ends and see what happens. As they say, train him up in the way they should, you know, like he'll never exactly. remember a day that he doesn't know baseball. If you Exactly. Just right. start it right off the bat. So, <laughs> but no, uh, yeah, I appreciate you uh, jumping on here to talk with me. It's uh, uh, been super helpful. Some things saying, could you uh, just give the people where they can find you on the internet and also this uh, podcast you're doing with the other Trinity? Oh, yeah, yeah, people. sure. Uh, yeah, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Uh, I think if you type in Josh Chip, you'll find me. Uh, and um, yeah, our podcast, it's called Forward, F-O-R-E-W-O-R-D, like the forward of a book, um, Ted's okay. Faculty Podcast. So I do that with my uh, uh, my friends and co-hosts, James Arcadi, Michelle Knight, and Madison Pierce. Um, and uh, yeah, we we interview a lot of, mostly Ted's faculty at this point. We'll probably open it up a little bit little bit more but we would we'd love to have you have you listen and and uh learn a little bit about some of our uh some of my colleagues at least at ted's so yeah yeah no it's been a good podcast i've enjoyed it uh obviously with some connection there i still haven't listened to the van hooser one that just came out that's on my list to do this yeah. weekend but uh it's been good we'll put it's all that in the show notes. Will. <laughs> yeah, exactly. i didn't do that one <laughs> i shouldn't say that but but yeah, I'll put it all in the show notes for you podcast listeners. You can just click on the links and check out, um, connect with Dr. Jip and also the podcast. But yeah, I want to thank you again. Appreciate you, Dr. Jip. Appreciate your work. Truly a gift to the church, gift to me in your work. Um, thanks for dropping some knowledge on the Wild yeah. World listeners. So Thanks, Will. It's, uh, it's fun to reconnect with you and really grateful, yeah. uh, you know, seeing people like you i'm proud of ted's every day seeing you you know just continues to remind me of all the good work um kingdom work our uh, our grads are doing so mm. yeah fun to connect for me too will thank you for listening to another episode of the wild wild world show make sure you subscribe rate and review Follow us on Twitter at Kingdom X Dreams and learn more at KingdomDreamer.com. Kingdom Dreamers are proud to partner with Bluehost, the most powerful web hosting around. We love Bluehost and we'll use no other host for our website. Right now, Bluehost will host your website for only $3.95 a month. The perfect time to start that website you've always wanted or to move your website to a better provider. To get this deal, go to the Bluehost link in the show notes.